0: Hello and welcome to Alexandra Marshall Live. On this show, we do not sit idly by and watch the culture war play out. We are not sipping champagne as the purple-bearded, rainbow-clad barbarians paddle into the harbour and set our libraries on fire, tear down our marble statues of our great heroes, or lay siege to our treasuries. We recognise that the grandeur of the past cannot protect the future. The ghosts of Menzies and Churchills cannot fight a modern battle. If we want to live in a world that values freedom, equality and dignity of the individual and the celebration of prosperity free from the suffocating arms of the state, we will have to fight for it ourselves. Joining us in combat is James Allen, favorite of the spectator Australia and Garrick Professor of Law at the University of Queensland, who lists his interests as legal and moral philosophy. He's been published in the top legal philosophy journals not only in Australia but in Canada, the UK and US. James, welcome to the show.
1: Yes, I have a sideline helping people with insomnia. So that's uh, that's the secret to legal and moral philosophy. You can put anyone to sleep. That was a good monologue, by the way. Great, great opening monologue.
0: Thank you very much. It's a call to arms. Now you have given many interviews and lectures around the world, but I've never heard you say why you started on this journey into, what was it Wikipedia called it? Moral philosophy and the upholding of constitutional law. What made the tiny little James Allen decide that yes, you are going to spend your life upholding the values of Western civilization?
1: Well, firstly, I never talk about journeys or conversations. It's just one of those things that makes you want to barf the way some people talk about journeys and conversations. Uh, basically, I fell into stuff, to be totally honest. I uh, I only did law because I was uh, on the Canadian university basketball team, varsity basketball team, and we we would be about division two in the States. And you get four years eligibility, but degrees were three years. So I had one year left, and I had to had to do something else. And in Canada, law and medicine are second degrees, so I did law. And then I worked in a big firm for a few years and got a chance to go to London Over and over lunch at Middle Temple. This British guy sitting beside me said, oh, we're opening a new law school in Hong Kong. Do you want to teach? Literally, that's how it happened. And I went home to my wife, and I said, Do you know where Hong Kong is? We knew it was near China somewhere. It was before the handover. So we ended up in Hong Kong and it was fantastic. There was no bureaucracy at the university. As long as you weren't taking money or sleeping with students, that's pretty much all the university cared about. It was just like the wall. It was like living in a Somerset mom short story. Dinner jacket three times a week. And it was fabulous. Uh, And then, I don't know, just, uh, I don't think I've moved. I sort of have Growing up with the sort of same set of views probably as John F. Kennedy, he'd probably have more hookers in the White House than I would. But, you know, other than that, on taxes and national defense and stuff, we're pretty much the same. But the craziness that, you know, I have, everything's left to me. And so uh, I grew up in a pretty vigorous family, Scots, Canadian, everybody yelled at everybody over meals, and then you never took offense at anything. But, you know, when people say they're bullied today, it's pathetic. I went to local state schools that were tough. And bullying for boys meant getting beaten up. And if I went home and told my dad I got beaten up, he would have looked at me and said, well, maybe you should do something about that. You know, a day where you were called names was a good day. And it made you vigorous and tough. And you know, people now just, they just have so little resilience. And I think part of the problem is we just cocoon them and the schools are sort of pathetic. We worry about trite little things. Meanwhile, our our results are below Kazakhstan and, and falling. You know, I would hate to see that was before COVID. I would hate to see the Australian international results. The school system is terrible. We get the smartest kids in Queensland coming into law at UQ. And, you know, they, they're obviously very bright kids. And If they're lucky, they've got parents who put some time into them. But most of them know zero grammar. It's not like that's hard.
0: Well, I have to, <clears> to say, so my you know, they're all let down. I have to say my favourite answers to that question are either I was kidnapped or it was an accident. So thank you for giving one it of the best yeah. one of the best answers to that question. And I have to say you're right about when it, when it comes to education. When I was growing up, my grandmother taught me that the whole, you know, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. And we grew up believing that words were not yeah. going to cause you physical damage, that you could be stronger than That's words. Right. And it was an important lesson for kids to understand that words were something they could overcome. But now the message is that words are literal violence. That is what we teach kids these days. And do you think that has something to do with how powerful propaganda has become? If kids believe that words are physically going to hurt them, then they think that political ideas can physically hurt them.
1: It's dangerous in many ways. In another way, it's, you know, the logic of words are violence is that you respond to words you don't like with violence. They're the same. And, you know, I don't think this attitude has lowered the amount of physical vo- The only thing you should be stopping is physical violence. If you don't like somebody's words, you respond with your own words. And, if, and you know, the people who think that limiting speech, because you call it hate or because it's offensive, it drives it underground. It's It's the sort of attitude that I, you know, do you want to know that the people next door to you are hateful bigots or don't you want to know? Well, you probably want to know, right? I mean, this idea that... We have to suppress speech has so many bad consequences down the road. And it's, it's a very, the idea that you can't trust your fellow citizens because, you know, they might get sucked in by speech that's wrong is, is, is problematic because A, you don't trust them and B, it, it assumes that you yourself are, have some sort of pipeline to God. And you can't even defer to the experts because we've just lived through three years where the experts got everything wrong. The biggest. This is Jay Bhattacharya from Stanford. The biggest source of disinformation during the pandemic was government. That's a more or less a quote from him. One of the top five epidemiologists, along with uh, Gupta from Oxford and Kaldorff, was at Harvard. They wrote the Great Barrington Declaration. So government got more things wrong, and the sort of public health cast. And here we are. We've got people saying, oh, this must be right, because the guy on TV who was a GP 30 years ago and, you know, swans around as a sort of expert, you know, he got just about everything wrong, too. And so they got masks wrong. They got transmit- transmissibility after the vaccine wrong. They got uh, catching the v- disease wrong after the vaccine. They got the lockdown costs wrong. They got the lab leak theory wrong. And the worst part was they were silencing people who didn't agree with the government narrative. This is the one of the problems with the ACMA bill. There's many problems. And so, you know, we need to go back to the idea that you should be open to hearing people. You might not agree with them, but you don't get to you don't get to silence them because you think you're right. And you, you're the government or because you've you know, you've consulted a bunch of sort of left leaning RMIT fact checkers. You know, if you if you were following the the uh, litigation over in the U.S. with uh, Facebook, um, in in the course of litigation uh, in discovery, Facebook said, "Oh yeah, well it's all just an opinion fact checking." Well, yes, that's right. It is all an opinion.
0: Well, I want so, you know, to ask you. I want to ask you a question. Sorry, the, go ahead. Yeah, the first thing yeah. that we have to work out is whether or not we really are involved in a culture war, some kind of great and dangerous conflict for the future of Western civilization. And I ask this question because most conservative politicians who believe themselves to be smarter and better educated than the rest of us, They don't see a difference between Australia of today and Australia 50 years ago. They think it's hyperbolic to worry about the incursion of collectivist-isms into our society and to them it is nothing if our children become sacrificial weapons wielded by some raised fist activists, I mean, and ordinary people as well, they're too busy going to work and trying to keep a roof over their family to notice that the great ship of Australia has filled with water and is listing to the side. James, what happens if we neglect or, through disinterest, we decide to lose this culture war? Will it have real implications for what the future of this country looks like?
1: I think it's pretty clear it does. I agree with Mark Stein that virtually everything's downstream of culture. And so if you don't care about free speech, that was our former liberal, supposedly liberal, Prime Minister Scott Morris, you know, said it never... Free speech never created a job. Well, actually, the whole Western competitive uh, economy is founded on the competition of ideas and free speech, and we've we've seen what uh, happened to the economy because uh, Scott Morrison handled COVID like a thug and didn't believe in free speech. So he's wrong on that front. Uh, so I think I think uh, you can see it that way. But take something else. You know, if you look at the Liberal Party today, about the only thing. These people can agree on because I think there's way too many so-called moderates in the party room, but they're basically labor light lefties. They can sort of still agree on the economy, right? Now, leave aside the fact that, that uh, Frydenberg and Morrison ran the most profligate spending regime in the history since World War II. Leave aside the fact they have no credibility on the economy. But let's say they agree that they want to have small government well, you can't win that argument unless people understand the value of hard work. That's a cultural issue. And you have to understand you know, that, that open capitalist economies create more wealth. Well, that's a cultural issue. If you think that you can just let people be indoctrinated with uh, collectivist left-wing views, and then you're going to win an argument on a small economy um, sort of election, you're not, because people aren't going to care about that. You, you know, They just give up on all of the things that come first free speech is a core issue they should be fighting it i'm still mad that uh, and i you know i think tony abbott was clearly the best prime minister since howard but he made a terrible mistake to give up on repeal of section 18c i think he recognizes that now and it's probably because he had a party room he couldn't get it through but he would have been better off to make him make them roll him on 18c because they would have looked terrible but you know you've got to fight these issues you don't have to win them you, you put it to the senate you go down fighting sometimes So, you know, obviously everything comes later after you've got a certain set of – we used to take for granted the sort of Protestant work ethic and the basic, you know, saving was a good thing. But, you know, they've done studies in the U.S. where if you finish high school and you don't have children till you're married and you get any job at all and show up on time on work, there's almost zero people who are in poverty those, now you're not going to be rich necessarily, but you just have to finish high school, don't have kids till you're married, and um, show up for work. What any job you get, you're not going to be in poverty. You'll have an, you know, you might not be rich, and those are just basic cultural issues. But if people think, you know, I think we got we got families where people have been on welfare for two or three generations, they never, they don't know anybody who works. How do you fix that? So this this sort of liberal attitude, I I don't know that they actually believe these battles. They just don't want to fight them. Or deep down they sort of agree with labor, you know. You're asking people to disbelieve their what they know is true when you say that someone who's had an operation and taken a lot of drugs is now a woman. No, he's not. You know, that's that's just a factual issue, right? You know, I can't I can't say, hey, I'm a trans age uh, Alexandra. I'm actually 21 because I feel 21, and maybe if I get good plastic surgery, you're still not 21. Right. I, hear, just, I hear there are some.
0: I hear that. there are some Instagram filters that might help you out with that one, James. But look, you know. Oh, well, maybe. I love the French language, particularly when it's spoken with an Australian accent. But we can thank the French intellectuals for keeping the dream of Marxism alive when it should have been snuffed out after the Second World War. Indeed the French romanticised these ideas and then exported them into these these infested corpses into American universities. And from there, like a virus, this new branded Marxism ended up with a a virulent strain of pro-collectivist dogma. Now, James, can we blame the French for the ideological mess that we find ourselves in in the West, or are there other reasons for the rise of, for lack of a better way to describe it, wokeism?
1: Well, just on France, I mean, my wife speaks... Well, she did. She was fluent in French, but you've been in Australia 18 years, so probably not. But I used to be able to get by in French pretty well. You know, les maudits d'anglais. So you just have to have a certain contempt for the English. And so, you know, they they certainly have a probably more of a regard for cutting-edge philosophers from universities. But the thing about the French is it hasn't seemed to infect their culture the way it has in the Anglosphere. So, you know, the Macron has just come out and said, we're not taking any statues down. Boris couldn't even fight for Churchill, the guy he wrote a book on. You know, he barely could summon up the will to defend the statue of Churchill. Macron just said, no paintings, no statues. And, you know, the French seem to be a bit more vigorous in upholding their their culture, maybe it's because they feel that, uh, you know, they're in a world of English speaking peoples and they're mad about it, but they, they do definitely do a better job than we do. And you're right. It comes into the U S and it starts with, okay, well, you know, it's okay. We'll take down Stonewall Jackson and Robert E. Lee, but then we'll stop there. And then, you know, they never stop. It's not like you can have a, you can, you can get all these crazy uh, cancel culture lefties together and say, okay, we'll make a final, final deal. We'll give you, you pick any four statues you want and then we're done with it. It's never like that. they just keep coming for more. So now they want it. in some places, they're taking down statues of uh, literally Abraham Lincoln. Like, you know, he, he won the Civil War. What are you talking about? No, he's not perfect. And in my home country of Canada, uh, the first prime minister has been canceled, Sir John A. MacDonald, who actually brought the country together. And he continued policies which the left-wing liberal government had in place about you know they took some Aborig- some Native Indian kids away from their parents when they were particularly abused. Now their intention was to give them an education, and uh, you know many of them later did pretty well. But you you these, these the standard they're holding them to is just ridiculous. So uh, he did what everyone else did in the eighteen sixties, and that's that's not enough to keep a statue up anymore. And in fact, the law school I went to at Queen's University changed the name. And this is a sort of, this is like a Maoist view that, you you know, the past is never up to today's standards, which means that the future will always look, you know, without attitude, we won't live up to the future standards. It's crazy.
0: Well, one thing that really bugs me on that point that you've made is Captain Cook. He's one of the best gentlemen and individuals probably ever to walk the earth. Someone whose morals and ethics and behavior would stand up to any standard today and puts most of the activists to shame by the way they behave. And yet he's branded as some kind of figure of hate that has his statues defaced. I mean. It's almost like we're watching one of those uh, intolerant Middle Eastern religious movements that tears down statues and civilizations that compete with it so that they can stand there amongst the rubble and say, look how great we are, we're the tallest thing around, after they've blown the rest of civilization to bits. Is that what it reminds you of when you look at the way these new activists behave?
1: Yeah, I mean, they don't like Cook because he he, he was the first uh, European to land here. But I think just is right. Where's the cost-benefit analysis? I mean, people have this uh, romantic view of what it's like to live in a hunter-gatherer uh, culture. I mean, it, it keeps you alive, but you live to 28 or 29. And Steven Pinker, a left-wing, then Harvard, now or then MIT, now Harvard um, writer, who's quite good. You know, he said. Uh, what do you call it? The the noble savage. He said, if you think life in hunter gatherer societies is great, it's terrible, and you know, h- upwards of half of men die through violence, and women are just, you know, it's a horrible existence for women because they're they're objects of the men who don't die, uh, basically, and it's a pretty violent way of life. And so, it's a cost benefit analysis. You know, it's not like, and I and another thing. So I don't understand this attitude that. Uh, You know, seven of my great grandparents oppressed one, an eighth one or something. And so what I want to do is relitigate the last 200 years. You can't relitigate the past. And you're living in a country where you have one of the best standards of living and life opportunities and freedom in the history of humankind. And the idea that if if Cook hadn't landed here. You wouldn't be here. That's the counterfactual. I mean, you know, it's a billion to one that the, the right sperm hit the right egg. And then if you start throwing in all the other multiples, it's a fluke you're even here. And you you would not be here if anything in history had changed. And so why, why in a sense, do you want to relitigate the past? I mean, yes, we can go back and say lots of bad things happen, but lots of good things happen, too. And I think Jacinta Price has done an excellent job of standing up for the fact that uh, we were very lucky that the British got here because if they didn't... Heaven help heaven help people if the Belgians had got here. Or um, the, the Spanish. Or the Spanish. You wouldn't want, the, the
0: Spanish. You, you would not want them Spanish. to be the first point of call for Australia. No,
1: no. Well, actually, the Belgians, there wouldn't be anybody left, but the Spanish, it was pretty bad too. And you know, they're, they're, they're relitigating the past in a world where... You know, more of their ancestors were European, most of these people. What, what's going on? It's this romantic view that life was perfect in Hunter Gut. And we know it's not true. Everyone knows it's not true. Um, we get to live to 75, 80, whatever it is. Uh, we have the most comfortable life in the history of humankind. And people just want to, you know, but one of the great things in my family is my, my dad and mom used to say there's always people better, than, better off than you and worse off. And don't be a victim. You're never allowed to be a victim in the Allen House. If you came home and you said you were a victim, you know, my dad just said, suck it up. I don't want to hear it. And we try to do that with our kids.
0: It's a really good way way to raise children, to raise them to be strong individuals. And the great thing about uh, Jacinda Price, as you mentioned her there, is she does not champion the rights of her race. She champions the rights of Australians as citizens of a single country. And that's why she is powerful. And and she's one to watch. But my other favourite thing is the the people who champion, let's say, the romanticised view of the hunter-gatherer civilisation. They're the kids who use Uber Eats to deliver some kind of lunch or, or drink from the corner store. They can't even be bothered to go down and get their own right food, now. let mm-hmm. alone hunt down a mammoth and eat that. So I don't know. I think they're living in a dream world. But Western civilization. I also
1: don't understand. I don't understand the the sort of not the logic, but the supposedly powerful argument when people say, well, you know, we were here first, or we were here for fifty thousand years, or sixty. 000. What does that matter? I mean, are we going to give uh, you know the Italy back to the Romans? I mean, every every group on earth has won some and lost some. I, I come from the Scots, you know, they got hammered and pushed up. The Celts got crushed by the Angles and the Saxons. You know, we just weren't we weren't competitive on the battlefield. Uh, so you know, who literally wants to go back and relitigate the past? If you just you're lucky to be here. And you've won the lottery of life living in any Anglosphere country. If you're in Canada or Australia or Britain or the U.S., you've won the lottery of life. If you look at the rest of the world, we're so lucky. And yet all people want to do is sort of nitpick and they don't want to ever see anything positive. And at least the French have kept, you know, they they sort of glorify their culture. And, you know, if you can't see the great things that someone like Winston Churchill did, there's something wrong with you. You know, he, he... If he hadn't been alive, there's a fairly good chance that uh, the Nazis would have taken out Britain or they would have sued for peace. And the Americans couldn't have done anything because, you you know, you couldn't cross the Atlantic with planes. And so this is a great achievement. And they go, oh, yes, but he had he had late 19th century views about, uh, you know, Hindu Indians. Well, yeah, he did. But. He was a great man. You know, it's like it's like you have to you look for the worst thing in someone's life and their history in the history of their life. And then you judge them and nobody withstands scrutiny to that effect. If, if the way we judge people is to take their whole entire life and find the worst thing that they have ever done and then say that represents your life, Alexander, I'm sorry. Well, nobody nobody measures up. I mean, not even Mother Teresa, to be honest. It's a terrible way of looking at things. We have a cost-benefit analysis, and we judge people in the context of what most people thought at the time. And, you know, we're all sophisticated enough to say, you know, Cicero was a pretty great guy, but everyone in Rome had slaves, and 70% of people in Rome were slaves. And so, of course, by today's standards, you know, Cicero had some pretty weird views. But we don't say I'm not even talking about Cicero today because, you know, I've decided that his views on slavery are just uh, Neanderthal. It's a ridiculous worldview.
0: Well, the whole reason that humanity has heroes or the concept of a hero is to give people something to strive for, an aspiration to be better than they are, even though everybody knows that real-life human beings have flaws and problems. But if you focus on the negative, then everyone becomes a villain and society no longer has anything to aspire to. But speaking of the uh, Scots, it just reminds me of that story where the Romans made it to Scotland. Saw the Scots and the way they were behaving. Went, you know what? I think we've gone far enough with the empire building. We draw no. the line at Scotland, and they just went back to uh, <laughs> to Britain. That's my favourite sort of historical story.
1: But actually, they, they, they built Hadrian. They built Hadrian's <laughs> Wall to keep the Scots out.
0: Yeah, they're like, you and stay you, over there. You guys are really scary. We don't want you in the return. Roman Empire. You're you're out. But the major problem that I I see is that politically correct problems that are championed by this champagne class as the epitome of, of moral virtue, will they have politically incorrect answers? This means that the people screaming in the street for woke causes are wholly incapable of solving the problems that they cry over. The result is an arms race of money and power and legislation, anything at all to avoid looking at the truth dead in the eyes and addressing the real problem at hand. I mean, a perfect example is, you know, as you were talking about the voice in remote communities, no amount of virtue signaling or sorry from the inner city elites is going to stop a person in an indigenous community from drinking, abusing their spouse or not sending their children to school. It's not a solution to the problem. So James, does the virtuous class on the left Predominantly activist politicians and the university elite—do they want to solve these ideological problems, or are they happy to make their living, grifting along off the permanent gaps and failures within society?
1: Well, I, I mean, I—I've tended to be convinced by the Gary Johns book on, you know, if you look at the eighty percent of Aboriginals who live in urban areas, their their uh, social statistics are not that far off Caucasians, right? They're doing—they're doing. They're doing much better. But if you look at the 20% who live uh, in remote areas, well, their social statistics are appalling. So the question is, can you actually do anything when people are living in these remote areas? It might be that in order to live a first world lifestyle, you sort of have to live a first world life. You can't live a, a life in the middle of nowhere. And the other problem I think is, and nobody wants to talk about this, but native title group, group rights, undermine the core idea where if you work hard, you keep the benefits. And if you work hard and then you have to share it with everyone, that is a very good outlook if you're running, if you're in a hunter gatherer society, you don't know when your next kill is gonna come. And so the way to survive is everyone shares everything. So that keeps you going. If you can only eat what you kill, you're gonna have some bad luck days and you're gonna starve to death. So you have to pool the risk, makes perfect sense. When you're living in a modern economy, the idea that you have to share everything, it just leaves you impoverished because it undermines the incentive. You just wait for the next welfare check. So, I, I mean, I personally don't think group rights in the in the sense of native title, it, it really undermines any ability. Now what I think people are worried about is if we allocate individual rights, some people will sell and maybe a non-Aboriginal person will buy. Well, that's right. That's what will happen. But you, you need to reward individual labor. And again, this is a cultural issue. Um, you know, I, I don't feel like I have a diminished life because um, Gina Reinhardt or Clive Palmer are billionaires, and I'm not a billionaire. There's lots of people doing better than I am. You know, I would have made a lot more money staying in law, but I just didn't like the lifestyle. Um, and so people make their own calls. Everyone's different. Everyone makes different trade offs and calls. But it's against the background. You have to realize it's against the background that... You know, we're really lucky and we and our generation, my generation has not done a very good job in passing on these these this sense that we're very lucky and that, you know, a little bit of patriotism is a good thing. People just assume the wealth and the sort of cultural capital will go on forever. But if we go back to the Romans, they have these great walking tours in London. My wife and I did one on Roman London. You you show up, you pay 10 pounds, you get a two and a half hour walk. So when the Romans left Britain, which was about 300 something AD, I can't remember, 320, 370 AD, the uh, guide said, how long do you think it took for the life, for the uh, living standard to get back to what it was when the Romans left? And it was a thousand years. When the Roman cultural capital left, it took a thousand years to get your life. So, you know, it's not a sort of wiggish you know, linear path upwards to ever greater prosperity, you have to actually work for things and you have to fight for free freedom and free speech and you have to be prepared to fight for your culture. Now, I happen to think, you know, you won the lottery in 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 being speaking English and having the sort of common law and the presumption of innocence. We have lawyers who can't even stand up for the presumption of innocence. We have senior lawyers who don't understand the presumption of innocence. We have a former prime minister, Scott Morrison, who wouldn't know what the presumption of innocence was if you went up and whacked him over the head with it, which many of us would like to have done. You know, he sold out all sorts of people, Christine Holgate, the SAS guy, Christian Porter, the list goes on of who uh, Lehrman, you know. Scott Morrison didn't understand that you don't say anything just because someone's been accused. That's nothing. In our, you know, the presumption of innocence is you treat people as though they're innocent until, you know, they've been convicted. And we have lawyers who don't even understand that. And it, it's in the name of believe all women. Like, why would you say believe all blacks or believe all whites or, you know, believe all amputees? Or, you know, it's ridiculous. Sometimes people lie and sometimes they don't. Everyone lies sometimes and everyone tells the truth. It's not like the genetic code because you have two X's. Makes you not a liar ever. James, you would
0: would never say believe all women if you'd ever been to a private girls' school. I guarantee you, you'd be be more likely to say believe no women because that would be far closer to the truth than believe all women. (laughs) And uh, look, you know, you're quite right. It's interesting what you said about tribal life and collectivism because the same thing is true of a war economy. Yes, you can run an economy based upon the regulations in war, where the state comes in and controls everything, and it might be prosperous for. Or a month or a year, but eventually it kills the economy and it kills the entire nation. And the same thing is true of collectivism. You can you can collectivise a nation for a while, but as we know, with all collectivist regimes, eventually they collapse and everyone starts eating their children. It's not a good idea. But we need to talk about equality and liberty. Speaking to Yes campaigners- just,
1: the- just, just, before you go on, just before you go on to this, Alexander, I don't know how many of your viewers know that if you adjust it for inflation, the Americans spent more fighting COVID than they did fighting the Second World War. That is how insane the COVID policies were. Uh, you know, uh, uh, something that had an uh, infection fatality rate of what, 0.1 or 0.2, what is it? 0.01, no, 0.1%. It's you know, barely more than the flu. This was the overreaction. At least when you're fighting a war, you're trying to sustain your civilization and people will make sacrifices and they'll go on rationing, but they're not going to make sacrifices for an elite class, a, a governing caste that gets so many things wrong and is so heavy handed and thuggish. And, you know, Dan Andrews when I know people cheered, but I just sort of felt like that's not enough. The man was a thug and all he's just walking away with a super high pension and that's like, that doesn't seem enough to me. I, uh, I, I want some sort of at least shaming and accounting where we roll them over the rake them over the coals we get nothing on that front so i'm still seething with anger and i'm mostly angry at my side of politics the libs where it doesn't seem like a single member of the party room uh stood up for any sort of western notions of uh civil liberties or freedom or anything else they were a disgrace all of them were a disgrace maybe george christensen wasn't um antic wasn't there were a few but you know what i mean pretty much the entire party room. So, it's against that backdrop that you have to talk about freedom.
0: Well our political cast... The the whole point of having a a battle and a war is that there's a a conclusion. There is a winner in a war. So, you know when it's going to end. COVID was this infinite money pit that people just kept pouring things into. And I'm telling you now, net zero is going to be exactly the same because it's an existential threat that doesn't exist, which means it can be milked forever by politicians but to talk about if a party
1: came out and said we're against net zero they'd have 25 to 40 percent of the vote almost immediately it's but the politicians they don't want to go to dinner parties in you know nice upmarket areas where people look down on them and, and and speak badly of them so i mean that's the problem we have to if You know, I'm starting to think we need a new party. The Liberals are barely beyond. So Dutton has sort of saved the party by coming out no, but he had to get dragged. It wasn't like they came to the obvious conclusion that, you know, unequal citizenship is obviously bad and we're no. They had to do focus group testing. And here's one of the things maybe the Liberals will notice. It was people in The Spectator right off the bat, including me, who said from day one, this referendum will lose. And that's when the polls were 70 percent yes, right, if you just run a focus group, the, the focus group says, yes, and that's the Liberal Party policy. But the thing is, you go out and you make arguments and you tell people why your position is this. And now it's 60 percent no. So does the Liberal Party understand that the whole Mark Texter view of the world is crazy? Fire the man. And sort of you go with your values and your beliefs and then you argue for them. And it might be that it's 70 percent against you at the moment. But once you've made the argument, you know, you can win people over. So I I think the whole focus group view of what policies we should have has led the Liberal Party to slaughter in Western Australia, slaughter in New South Wales. We have John Pasuto leading the party in Victoria. I hate Dan Andrews and I hate the Labour Party in Victoria for what they did. I could never vote for John Pasuto. He's a disgrace. His view of what he's done to my redeeming I just wouldn't vote for the man. So, you know, they need to move him out and start standing for stuff. Well, um, so that's my background view on this stuff.
0: Well speaking to yes, campaign is in the voice debate. and even before that, when we had the Black Lives Matter movement in full swing, It became clear that these individuals do not believe in equal rights. The argument that most Australians bring out about citizens being equal under the law does not excite these activists. They don't want equality of rights. Like the third and fourth wave feminists, the current movements of race activism in Australia are set around retribution and the toxic notion of equity, which is nothing more than the old communist notion of viewing humans as efficient cogs in a machine, each with a purposeful laid out path by the state. Now, have, how do you have a debate on something like the voice as a people when these activists do not actually share the same fundamental values of equality? Because that means you can't win on the normal debates of equality under the law.
1: Yes, we've allowed the schools and the universities to become sort of breeding grounds for e- equity. Just means equality of outcome by group. So you, you. You pick some characteristic, their reproductive organs or their skin pigmentation, and then you say all disparities can only be explained by discrimination. And so this is this is the problem with quotas, including for women on boards and stuff. You you assume that all differences relate only to and by difference, you mean you look at the group and you say, How does this group do versus its percentage of the population? And so if there isn't the exact one-to-one equivalents on boards or in professorships or, and it's only good things. Notice these groups only ever complain about, good. no one ever says uh, 95% of people who die on the job are men. That's true. That's about the, the statistics. So what we need to do is get women into jobs where a lot more of them die. We need to get women dead. So it's 50, 50. I mean, we a ridiculous attitude. And, and so it's only good things. And it's this idea that what is most important about you is this group characteristic. It's it's you no know, it's just straight out. Um, it's not communal. It's worse than that. It's group it's group thinking and treating people as non individuals. So I don't like that. Now I do think that maybe you're a bit hard on um, some of these people because I have started to wonder if maybe early on in the voice debate, uh, you know, some really smart person on the no side got together and and put Marshall Langton and Noel Pearson under you know underground as secret no agents. And then they activated them, and then they, they started calling everyone racist. You know, those are the two best advocates for the no position. And it's at least possible that Noel Pearson and Marshall Langton are actually no agents, deep undercover no, no agents, and we've we've activated them. So, you know, the way they ran the Yes campaign, and I'm delighted, but I think you and I, Alexandra, could have done a better job running the yes campaign. I mean, how hard is it to tell people you get, you don't get to call people who disagree with you morally sort of substandard moral cripples who are racist. They, they cannot help themselves from insulting people. That shows you the level of moral arrogance and moral uh, you know, sanctimony. So I, I just, uh, I, I agree with you. If people are that morally self-righteous and they see the world in group terms, You really just have to win the battle politically and then do something. So when the liberals get in, they brought us the national curriculum worse than the curriculum we had. Everything the liberals touch, they forget that, you know, if you hand it off to a bunch of bureaucrats, you're not getting a liberal outcome. You're getting a, a left wing group outcome, so stop doing that. And when they have problems with the universities, they go and consult with the vice chancellors. The vice chancellors are the problem. Almost uniformly, they're the problem. Why are you going to consult with them? You know, there's maybe a couple, like a dozen or two conservatives working in universities. No one ever got a call. I know most of them. No one got a call in nine years. Every single year, universities got worse. You know, when the liberals wanted to go and consult with somebody, they went and consulted with the vice chancellors or they brought in a former chief justice who was appointed by Labor to look at the paperwork. You know, what do the codes of conduct say? That's not the problem on the universities, that's a trifling problem. It's the culture of the universities that's the problem. And so I agree with you. To some extent, you just have to win these battles democratically and then do things. You know, whatever you say about labor, you know, they just get into office and do things. Even if it wasn't in the manifesto, they just do it anyway. <laughs> so you know, they, they accomplish things. And when people go, oh, you know, liberals are the, national, the natural party of government, you know, they don't do anything. Labor is in for two or three years. They just throw everything at the wall, see what they can do. We do nothing. Our side is, we're worthless.
0: The Liberal Party has been in charge of education in the various states for a long time and things have only gotten far worse. But in the Lessons of History, Will and Ariel Durant wrote that nature smiles at a union of freedom and equality in our utopias, for freedom and equality are sworn and everlasting enemies. When one prevails, the other dies." Now they were not talking about equality of rights under the law, they were talking about equality of outcome. The implication being that when humans are free to make their own choices, the gap between success and failure grows wider. Many would say such is life. After all, the nature of evolution, whose rules underpin our entire existence, competition has winners and it has losers. Now that isn't exactly a bad thing. So I have two questions for you, James. Is it important for humanity to have winners and losers? And secondly, is this how it is for civilization? You can have liberty, or you can have a communist sort of version of equality. And is Australia going to end up being one or the other?
1: I mean, I think there are very few people today who don't want to have a safety net for people who who are at the bottom of the pile and haven't done too well. I mean, one of the things you notice with some very successful people is they they forget that there's an awful lot of luck in life. (laughs) The the most important decision you can make is picking your parents because genes matter. And you know, if if you've won the lottery of life because you're smart, or actually when you look at the statistics, the best thing the the best indicator of how you're going to do is, is being beautiful. If you're attractive, male or female, that has better statistical outcomes even than being smart. So, you know, this is luck. It's not, and then people go, yeah, but I work really hard. But that's a genetic trait, you know, people that work hard. So you've got to always remember that you want to have some sort of safety net for people at the bottom. But if you don't have competition and incentives, you don't create wealth. And so you need to create the wealth before you can send some of it to people who haven't done too well. And the idea that you can have this lacking an in incentive sort of model, everyone's poorer. If you go back to the early 1900s, Argentina was one of the wealthiest countries on earth. They had the same natural resources you see in, in Australia. What they didn't have was the British set of institutions in the background. I mean, they had some British uh, cattle farmers and stuff. And so the background cultural values and the institutions, the, the rule of law, that sort of makes a big difference. And and it also makes a difference to realize that people respond to incentives. And if you have a high tax rate, you know, people don't want to work very hard once they're paying 60 cents to the dollar to the government or even 50 cents. You know, I, I loathe the fact that I you know, half of half half of any outside money I get has to go to the government. That's a lot. That's a high marginal tax rate. And if you look at people at the bottom in Singapore with a very low tax rate, well, the people at the bottom are doing better than most countries. And so I agree with you that uh, you y- you can admit that there's a lot of luck in life, and you can admit that uh, to some extent, the people who do exceptionally well have been very lucky. But that benefits us all, you know, it benefits us all when somebody comes up with new medical uh, procedure or something. And so you just, you can't go around feeling envious about everyone. Now, um, you know, I, if you go back to the, the earlier part of the question, I'm not sure it's just the competition and the sort of rewarding individual endeavor that creates the uh, inequality. The, The two and a half years of COVID was the biggest Uh, transfer of wealth from the poor to the to the rich. So all of the Morrison government and Boris and all the lockdown democracies, their policies transferred massive wealth from the poor to the rich, because in order to support these policies, they had to print money even faster than they'd been printing it before. And that creates inflation and worse, it creates asset inflation. And the only people who have assets are rich people. And so it was the best two years ever for billionaires. Now, this massively widened the gap, and it wasn't because of the sort of capitalist free market. It was because of government policy, insane, thuggish, um, heavy-handed government policies. It also transferred wealth from the young to the old. Um, So, you know, I have big problems with all the Keynesian sort of economic policies. I'm the black sheep in my family. I'm a lawyer, but, you know, my sister, my my dad, my uncles, they're all economists. And they, and, you know, they weren't all Keynesian economists. And, uh, you know, the sort of status quo view that you print money and you can have zero interest rates, that was before COVID. Who thought that was a good idea? I mean, it just rewards borrowers. I I, I come from a long line of Scotch Presbyterian Calvinists. My parents were atheists. I'm an atheist. But, you know, I've got all the Presbyterian cultural values and you ought to have a a set of uh, incentives that reward savers, not borrowers. That used to be sort of standard orthodoxy, but now we reward people who go out and borrow like crazy. And you'd be silly when there's zero interest rates, you gotta borrow, you gotta, so we never should have got interest rates down that low. The attempt to never have mild recessions is crazy. And one of the worst things I dislike is the governments, including liberal governments, talking about gross domestic products. So the way you can keep GDP going up is you import a million people every year because gross domestic product measures economic activity. You can always increase economic activity if you have enough uh, immigrants coming in. But what people don't realize is if you measure gross domestic product per capita, well, what, is this our second quarter in a row where we're in a recession? I mean, Australia is doing really badly if you look at gross domestic product per capita per person and if you look at japan which has zero immigration really even when our economy was booming and gdp was going up if you looked at gdp per person we were we weren't doing any better than japan you know so why why do you care about the overall gdp figure when the figure per person isn't doing very well and you add all these problems like infrastructure problems and everyone knows the main problem with the lack of housing is We're letting a few hundred thousand people come in. Now, it's true. We have ridiculous zoning rules and we have too many regulations. But if we weren't running the biggest per capita immigration Ponzi scheme, people go, oh, we're coming to Australia for your great universities. No, you're not. I mean, you're coming that, here to get the visa. You're coming here to get the visa and stay. That's that is the, re- the biggest lie I've that.
0: ever heard is you've come to Australia yeah. for university systems. I mean, give yeah, me a break. You know, Australians just, are leaving to go to other countries for universities. That yeah. is what's really happening. But, I mean, there's this. There's always been these terrible isms in history, starting from socialism, of course, then we've got communism and Marxism and globalism and national socialism and fascism. They're all coming from the same original socialist seed but now we've got a a new branding on it we've got this woke although we've sort of called it a wokeism to keep it in with the rest of the pack and when I hear anybody say what is woke, woke doesn't exist, woke is not real, all I can hear in my ears is the whole this isn't real socialism line because it's very similar. So I'm going to ask you what is woke because I once defined it as a catch-all description for modern collectivist ideologies that are internally inconsistent, historically confused and morally backward, it is a fifth generation inbred cousin of political correctness that identifies as an omni-victim, although to be fair I later narrowed it down to just nonsense. What's your definition of woke, James?
1: Well, I do think it's an outgrowth of what we used to call political correctness. Going back to what I said before, it's a desire to see things in terms of groups. And to assume that groups all have to have the same outcomes as a group. Otherwise, you put it down to um, discrimination. It can't be that people have different preferences or different work habits or different abilities. You rule that out. And it's a desire not to let anyone say anything that goes against the narrative or the argument that it's all about sort of equity is just judging people by groups. No sense of humor and no willingness to let your ideas sort of compete in the marketplace of ideas. So you just want to rule other ideas out. Uh, It it plays out in terms of a total lack of humor. Like stand-up comedians, if you you are being judged by the worst thing you've ever said in your life, then comedians can't actually operate. You know, one of the people that was most liked back in, uh, you know, the 70s was Don Rickles, you know, he was apparently a, a pretty wonderful guy first but his whole comedy stick was just to insult people. He insulted you by, you know, your race or he just he picked he picked on people. And you know, everyone knew it was just part of the stick and he was a very funny man. Well, he wouldn't have a career today So there's a whole bunch of factors going in, but at at the heart of woke, I would say, and I I like the term political correctness better because it's an unwillingness to let anyone challenge um, the left wing orthodoxies. So, you know, it's a question of fact, I think, in the external causal world of whether someone who has an XX chromosome or an XY can actually shift to the other sex. The answer is no, you can't. It's true that in the last 20 years, we've developed incredibly sophisticated medical techniques where you can take drugs and you can have surgery and you can create a, a rough facsimile of the other thing. But it's not the same thing. And, you know, you still got the X, Y chromosome in all. I don't know what do people have three trillion cells in your body. Each one of them either has X, Y or XX, And I know there are X, X, Y, one in a million types, you know, totally different because at least on the surface, they... They uh, show one set of, I think, almost always um, reproductive organs or the other. But so we are supposed to believe and we're supposed to repeat these sort of these mantras that, oh, well, you know, anyone who wants to be a woman is a woman. But it's just not true. And why should you be forced to say that anyone who? And so, you know, another aspect of woke is that people go around with their pronouns as if that means anything. You're I think we already know at birth what you are and the idea that you 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 don't become a man or a woman till kindergarten you know, till you've you've thought about it it doesn't matter what you think it's the same and and you get these really arbitrary lines so if someone stood up and said I'm I'm trans race and you know I'm going to wear some black face and uh, I'm going to become a a black no one would let you do that they would say, no, you're either born Caucasian or you're born black. Someone actually did
0: try to do that, only it wasn't uh, black, they were becoming Korean, and they eventually decided that that wasn't a good idea. But it's an example because exactly what you said there, it caused international outrage among the very people who said you can change sex, which is, of course, obviously not true.
1: Look, here's the truth of it. On many, 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 many aspects of life, I have far more in common with a black man than I do with a white woman. I mean, you know, what did uh, uh, what did Jane Austen start Emma with, or something? It is a one half of the world can never know the pleasures of the other. You know, she didn't think that you have an operation and all of a sudden you could. It it's so we have this desire to say to people, even though you know this isn't right and you know it's not true. You have to say it. It's sort of like going back to the 39 articles. You could only go to Oxford and Cambridge if you mouthed these things. You didn't have to actually believe them. You didn't have to live by them, but you had to say them. And in some ways on the question of free speech, you know, it's not It's not good to silence people, but it might be even worse to make people say things they don't believe. You know. So if you had to pick which is worse, I think there's a good argument for saying, It's even more of a speech problem when you force people to say things they know aren't true. And we see that all, it's all through the universities and the schools. You know, we have 18 million flags flying and you have your victim of the weekday happens every week. And this is happening in schools. And and there's many people who say, you know, because they come and say to me, this is all garbage. But they won't say anything because the way the universities are run is very heavy handed. People lose their jobs. If they don't lose their jobs, they've endangered their chances of getting grants or um, getting promoted. So, I mean, I'd like to see a little bit of, I don't normally say this, Emmanuel Macron willingness to fight back on the culture war front. I mean, terrible president of France, but at least on cultural issues, he stands firm, moderately firm, certainly more than any English speaking Thing. And so I, you know, people go, what's what's the appeal of Trump? Well, one of the appeals of Trump is, he goes, this is all garbage, in a crass way, in a boorish way. But you know what? On most issues, he was right. And he had uh, some pretty good success as president. He wasn't perfect. But yeah. on the big-ticket issues, and that's what I care about, I don't care if I wouldn't want to have the guy for dinner. And I don't care if he's sort of crude and boorish. He's one of the few politicians who actually seems to have a backbone and fight for stuff. I mean— you know the best we have in this country right now on the right side of politics is Peter Dutton, and you know, okay, he's 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 a vertebrate, but barely. He's barely a vertebrate. You know, he's he, in a party full of amoebas and invertebrates. He's a vertebrate, but you know, you have to you have to he, he you know he didn't go charging into the battle against the voice. You had to have eighty-seven focus groups, and we are and the conservatives had to start winning the argument on the ground. You know, is the Gary Johns and. And people fighting and writing articles saying this is going to lose. We we were basically starting to win before you could drag a few liberals over the line. There are obviously exceptions, but you know this is not this is not good. We want a little bit of back. I'd rather have a party uh, that fought and lost on things and actually believed in things. Cool. They think if they don't have any view, views, they're going to win. But you don't win elections. People don't want to vote for the Western Australia Liberal Party that positions itself to the left of Labor. More green, more woke. This is how we're going to win the election. I don't think so. How do people sign off on that? Yeah.
0: Just quickly, we don't have a lot of time here, so uh, just a, a final quick comment. You're obviously at the, dare we say it, coal face of wokeism being inside the university arena and dealing with the academics. I think the French had the right idea. They exported all their toxic ideas and gave them to us and then they didn't have to deal with them. Do you see any hope that we'll return to having universities of the illustrious historical thing, the universities you dream of when you were a child growing up thinking, yes, I'm going to go and learn things in these halls of Western civilization. Are they going to come back?
1: So, uh, Niall Ferguson, so the historian, not Neil Ferguson, the crazy Imperial college m- modeler who's never got a model right in his life. And, you know, he overpredicts disaster by, you know, a couple of orders of magnitude, including COVID foot and mouth disease, mad cow disease. He's never gotten right anything right. This is the guy Boris listened to. So not that one. Um, now, Ferguson sort of has given up in a way, and they've started a new university in the States called the University of Austin, where it's committed to. Uh, but the real problem, I think, is the John O'Sullivan law, which is any organization that's not overtly right wing will over time become left wing. And so, you know, if you go back 70 years, universities were 65, 35 left, 60, 40 left. Now, couple of studies have come out both britain and uh, the u.s it's it's over 90 percent academics are left there's whole departments that haven't got any conservatives at all including um jonathan hates psychology so he laments this it's exactly the same in australia we haven't done the studies and the data but you know i can tell you that there's no difference from being in a british university and here it's monolithically left um you know if you don't want to have rainbow uh sort of Claw, uh serviettes and napkins with your morning tea, you're deemed to be hateful. No, I just don't want politics to infect every aspect of my life, which is what happens at these things. Um, again, I go back to the uh, tolerance used to mean it was an outgrowth of the sort of wars between Protestants and Catholics where they slaughtered each other over basically nothing. And they just came to a working arrangement where tolerance meant I'll leave you, Alexander, to do what you want. You leave me to do what I want. But it doesn't mean I agree with your life choices. It doesn't mean that all of a sudden I've changed religions. It meant that it was a live and let live and that kind of tolerance works. And that was the kind of tolerance we had when we were growing up. And now tolerance has not, it's it's not a live and let live. It's a you must respect my choices or you're not tolerant. But let's face it, there's a lot of choices people make and I don't respect their choices. I think this is a terrible way to lead your life. Your life, do what you want but don't expect me to endorse it and wear little flags and you know stick things in my hair to show. So that's the wrong kind of tolerance. And the problem with that tolerance is it becomes very authoritarian, very heavy. It demands that you sign up. At least you don't have to maybe agree inside yourself, but outwardly you have to show complete and total agreement. It's not a long lasting form of talk. To- the, the kind of tolerance that works is the old fashioned live and let live. I'm going to leave you to do what you want. You leave me to do what I want. I'm going to be a nice neighbor. I'm going to be polite, but I don't have to agree with your choice. I don't have to agree with the church you go to. I don't have to agree with the job you picked. I don't have to agree with, you know, the fact that you want to go to the strip joint. We, we don't have to agree, but I leave you to leave your, live your life. That's the tolerance that's, that will endure and is sustainable. The modern form of tolerance really is, is not tolerant at all.
0: Yeah, well, if you're either, think, in
1: the, you're either in the elect or you're, you're deemed to be a, a bad person.
0: I think I'll stick with my bookshelf for now. It sounds a lot more inclusive yeah. and tolerant of common thought and yeah. reason. But look, that's all we have time yeah. for. Thank you very much for joining us today, James.
1: So you're, you're succumbing to timeism, another ism.
0: <laughs> it's a form of the oppression. Old
1: timeism. Yeah, it's a form of oppression. Okay, thanks, Alexander.
0: <laughs> Thank you very much. And that's all we have time for. Catch you next week.